Tonight's lecture is entitled Introduction and Overview, What We Are, and will explore the built-in complexity that enables us to discover the keys to how ultimately the mind constrains the brain. Professor Gazanica, could I now invite you to present the first of your Gifford lectures. Thank you, uh, Professor Brown, and to the Gifford Committee for this uh, honor. Uh, I am full of gratitude, and, uh, and uh, I hope I can live up to the standards. I'm sure uh, many of you have read, indeed, studied previous Gifford lectures. Their elegance over the past hundred years or so is, uh, is extraordinary. And if you have truly sampled them, then it may be the case that you are here this evening out of curiosity. What on earth could this year's lecture possibly say that is new? We all know Lord Gifford wanted to explore natural theology. We know some of the greatest minds of the Western world have delivered their, their ideas, precipitated major battles, and spelled out, among other things, the vastness of the universe at this podium. Some have decried the failure of the secular world to provide a hopeful message about the meaning of life, and others have plain out rejected theology natural or otherwise, as a worthwhile topic for grown-ups. <clears throat> Others have used this forum to discover and to discuss their religious devotion and to analyze it with great sensitivity, intelligence, and feeling. It has all been said, and all of it has been stated with such clarity that I almost withdrew from this assignment. But I'm here tonight for the same reason you are here. There is an insatiable desire to know more about the human situation. We are all students of this topic. In a way, we are, are stupefied by our interests because we already know a great deal. And even though we sometimes have a hard time accepting secular views, most of us believe the implication of our modern knowledge. We are big animals, clever and smart as we can be, frequently using reason to a fault. And yet we all tend to wonder, is that it? I think we all recognize that a certain belief is palpably dominant in the scientific community. There are physical laws that govern the happenings in the physical world, and we are part of that physical world. As a consequence, there are laws that govern our behavior and even our conscious self. Determinism reigns in science, and we are asked to accept it, get over it, and move on. Over the years, many Gifford lecturers have approached this issue from many different perspectives. Some physicists have said, not so fast. There is wiggle room on this idea of determinism ever since quantum mechanics replaced the Newtonian view of matter. There is uncertainty at the atomic and molecular level, and this fact means you, can, you are free to choose the Boston cream pie over the berries the next time the dessert tray is passed around. At the same time, others have argued that the, ato the atomic uncertainties are not relevant to the workings of the nervous system and how it ultimately produces the human mind. Nonetheless, the dominant idea in modern neuroscience remains that a full understanding of the brain will reveal in an upwardly causal way all that is needed to be known about how the brain enables mind. But what if it's not that simple? What if modern neuroscience is not, in fact, urging what amounts to wholesale fundamentalism with respect to determinism? What if the mind which is generated by the, the brain constrains the brain? And what on earth is meant by that? In a time when we all can agree that causal forces are sometime are the only way to uh, understand our physical world, which is to say the world we live in, how could that idea work? Indeed, what if something like the Big Bang happened when mind emerged from the brain? The idea of emergence with all of its implies for seeking an explanation at the right level becomes front and center and crucial. Just as traffic emerges from determined and mechanistic cars, traffic does ultimately constrain cars. So does the mind constrain the brain that generated it, even though it is still part of it? Like trying to sink a cork in water, this issue, no matter who addresses it, keeps popping back up to the surface 
in the Gifford Lectures. Whether it was C. Lloyd Morgan, Michael Polanyi, J. Z. Young, Donald Mackay, or Sir John Eccles, the centrality of the point for understanding what we humans are experiencing as sentient, forward-looking, and meaning-seeking animals cannot be overstated. I wish to continue in this tradition and to outline the progress of understanding the framework on how mind constrains the brain. It's tricky, because in nothing I say in these lectures suggests the mind is separate from the brain. My duty here, as I see it, is to review some modern human knowledge from the brain and cognitive sciences that many of the great minds of the past simply did not know. It hopefully adds to our understanding, and the review reflects, of course, my own synthesis from my research as well as the research of many, many others. In the end, it is a perspective laced with scientific truths of discovery many of you will recognize and even interpret uh, differently. I can only hope you will find it interesting and engaging, and in the end, I hope you will see that a modern, secular view of humans is promising, affirming, and put simply, dazzling. So let's go to work, and perhaps with some whimsy and humor as we humbly remind ourselves that we're in one galaxy, and there are roughly 500 billion of them, and each with 200 billion stars and what may be an infinite number of universes. When preparing for these Gifford lectures, I came across William James' remark, our heirs are surely not awfully solemn things in a world where they are so certain to incur them. In spite of all our caution, a certain lightness of heart seems healthier than this excessive nervousness on their behalf. I took that to heart preparing this, and I instructing you to do the same. Do they laugh in Scotland? I guess not. Okay, here we go. It's our, the human's interest in, in, in what we are and who we are, obviously, is as old as history. And when we see that the, at the Temple of Adelphi, the uh, the aphorism of know thyself, we know that man has always been intrigued and wanted to know what is the nature of the, of the mind and self and what is it that the human condition mean. And in modern neuroscience terms, that in our generation of students and students of this topic and students who, who feel this question, that means exploring the brain by poking it, by recording from it, by stimulating it, by analyzing it, by doing it comparatively in animals and humans and all the rest. And it is that perspective that I will bring to you with the freshness of uh, what is modernly known, but every time you think you're coming up with something new, you pick up a history book and you realize that everybody's already said it. And so here's Hippocrates in the fifth century BC. Man ought to know that from the brain and from the brain only arise our pleasures, joys, laughters, and jests, as well as our sorrows, pains, griefs, and tears. It is the same thing which makes us mad or delirious, inspires us with dread and fear. These things that we suffer all come from the brain. So the idea has been around for a long time. And when Lord Gifford uh, directed and, and put forth his will to study natural theology, he says, I wish the lectures to treat their subject as strictly natural science, the greatest of all possible sciences, without reference to or reliance upon any special, uh, uh, supposed special, exceptional, or so-called miraculous revelations. I wish it considered just as astronomy or chemistry it is. The lecturers should be under no constraint whatever in their treatment uh, of their theme. And finally, I am persuaded that nothing but good can come from free discussions. That remains to be seen. <clears throat> so the number of people who have been at this podium, as you know, range in their fields from physics, with Niels Bohr, uh, Werner Heisenberg, philosophy, Alfred North Whitehead, Albert Schweitzer, and of course, Hannah Arendt, and William James, and Max Muller, the theologists. There has been a deep, deep, and profound history of people representing the ideas about the nature of man from these perspectives. There have been three Gifford lecturers who have really come from the perspective of brain research as I come from. Sir Charles Charrington and his Gifford lecturers, Man on His Nature, Sir John Eccles, 
uh, and of course uh, Donald Mackay. I had the privilege in my life to know both Sir John Eccles uh, and uh, Don Mackay. Both of them featured uh, in their Gifford lectures, uh, surprisingly enough, research that I'd carried out 30 years ago, uh, and they, they were problemed by it, and as these lectures unfold, we will be addressing those issues and how I would represent that information uh, differently than they did. But they were, they were both phenomenal science, and Donald Mackay, actually, just as a side bit of history, was a dear friend uh, whose wife, a wonderful wife, Valerie, saved my daughter's life. So there you go. So uh, <clears throat> there are other views, though, on the brain that creep into the Gifford lectures, and one of them uh, came from uh, uh, Carl Sagan, the great uh, cosmologist, and it's important to point out because it, it, it represents, a, by many, a popular view of how the brain instantiates mind and how evolution occurred, and it's just flat out wrong. Uh, so in his book, he, uh, he heralded uh, the work of uh, a, a famous neurologist, Paul McLean, and who had a theory of the triune brain. And basically the idea was that as we evolved, we just kept adding things much like uh, you would just add a car on a train. And so I call it the train theory of evolution. Uh, but in fact, uh, what we are what we're evolving to trying to understand is something quite different as we look at from how we came uh, from uh, uh, lesser uh, primates, we find that what we have to talk about is an evolved brain, but through that evolution, the, the brain becomes restructured and just a completely different thing. I'm gonna try and make that argument in a convincing way. So as uh, Sherlock Holmes said, the difficulty is to detach the framework of fact of absolute undeniable fact from the embellishment of theorists and reporters, then having established ourselves upon the sound basis that is our duty to see what inferences may be drawn and what are the special points upon which the whole mystery turns. So I will start this by taking you to my alma mater, Dartmouth College, and to uh, a a discussion between two of America and Canada's great psychologists, uh, Carl Lashley, as you see here on the left, and Donald Hebb on the right. And uh, these people were, uh, these great scientists were, were colleagues, uh, they were postdoctoral fellows together, and they basically argued over the following point. Is the brain a blank slate and largely plastic? That's sort of the view of, uh, came to be of Carl Lashley. Or does the brain come with constraints and somewhat determined by its structure? And that grew out of Hebb. He didn't quite put it that way, but that grew out of Hebb into a series of people such as Roger Sperry, uh, my mentor. So Lashley had the view that the brain could basically be anything from a series of elegant experiments he did on the rat, where he tried to see which parts of the brains were critically involved in learning visual discriminations. And he ablated the rat's brain, he sliced the rat brain, he disconnected this part of the brain from that part of the brain. Nothing seemed to work. And so he came up with the key principle of mass action. The action of the brain as a whole determines its function, that the, their brain, each part of the brain was equal potential. Any part of the brain could perform anything. There were no specializations. And, uh, and lastly, it turns out, was a good friend of uh, the famous psychologist, uh, John B. Watson, who uh, came to psychology from Madison Avenue and was uh, really one of the fathers of American behaviorism. And as you know, this famous quote from uh, Watson uh, is born in part because he thought the neuroscientists of the time had shown that there are no specializations in specificity. So he said, give me a, a dozen healthy infants well-formed in my own specified world to bring them up in and I'll guarantee to take anyone at random and train them to become any type of specialist I might select, doctor, lawyer, artist, merchant, chief, and yes, even beggar, man, and thief, regardless of his talents, pensions, tendencies, abilities, vocations, and race of his ancestors. This was the total package that we can take any organism and by the contingencies of the social world, make them into anything. And the great uh, first, uh, one of the original uh, developmental neurobiologists, Paul Weiss, then at the University of Chicago, and later on at Rockefeller University, 
Paul Weiss was uh, also a believer in this sort of general notion that, the, that uh, the, the brain was not that specific in its development. And he had the famous phrase, function precedes form. And he came to that by taking newts and grafting onto them a third uh, uh, limb. And the question was, would the nerves grow out to the limb specifically, or did the nerves grow out randomly, and then by use of the limb, it, they became adapted to be limb neurons, sort of thinking. Well, that idea, uh, as was summarized by my mentor, Roger Sperry, was uh, called the growth of synaptic connections was conceived to be completely non-selective, diffuse, and universal. In other words, anything went in the nervous system. There wasn't a structured system that we were dealing with. And so we had, we had Lashley starting this, we had the behaviorism of America pushing this, and we had the greatest uh, zoologist of the time, Paul Wise, saying, yes, I think that's the way it's work. Uh, it works. And then uh, Hebb broke away from this a little bit. Hebb began to think that connections were very important. Connections between neurons increase efficacy in proportion to the degree of correlation between their pre- and postsynaptic use. That's, so if two neurons uh, begin to fire together as it came out, they wired together. And here's an illustration from uh, Donald Hebb's uh, thesis, and it just simply points out that if these neurons here begin to fire together, they become the dominant pathway and it breaks off from uh, the other pathway. So the brain, the brain be becomes to take on a specificity of functions that specific connections are important. But the real serious, uh, so this, this gave rise to this, this phrase that is still with us, what fires together, wires together. But the real, the real fundamental work that uh, became the backbone of modern neuroscience in, in, in the story of neurospecificity and the importance of neurospecificity was really work done by Weiss's student, Roger Sperry, who was my mentor. So there's the historic uh, connection. And Sperry did some unbelievably clever and classic experiments, very simple in nature, and then later, but more, more intricate and more and, and profoundly important. Uh, but a simple experiment is that he would take a frog and simply surgically turn the eye upside down. And what that means is that when the frog was uh, shown a fly and would try to stick its tongue out to catch it, it would go in the opposite direction. And then the question is, the frog was allowed to, this new arrangement, sort of upside down goggles, if you were, uh, for, for months, and the frog never changed. There was a specificity to the system that began to emerge, began to think. And then Sperry went on to do experiments where he took the goldfish and he would lesion parts of the retina and then as the nerves regenerated, where, watch where they would grow into the optic tectum. And when they would grow very specifically, if they were in the, dorsal, in the ventral part of the retina, they would go to the dorsal part of the tectum. They would do this very specifically, and he did all the controls. He would lesion the, the, uh, uh, the dorsal part and see them grow back ventrally and so on. And so what happened was Sperry came up with a view that there, as neurons grow out, to find their connections in the brain, they sit out, send out little pseudopodia, and they kind of test the waters and see which way to go. And then because of a chemical gradient in the overall brain structure, they would find their way to a specific place. This is the fundamental ideas that led up to the whole strong notion that is still prevalent in neuroscience today of nerve specificity. But overall, it's been altered and changed, and there's subtle adjustments to it, of course. Uh, but the overall idea has been represented by many people. Uh, in, in recent terms, the, the work of John Koss and Leah Krobitzer show that the overall schema of the organization of the brain throughout the vertebrate kingdom is the same. It gets smushed around, as they say, a little bit, but the relationship between the sensory fields is, uh, it has the same overall plan. So the idea is that well, the, the, the genetic structure develops the overall context of the brain and how it develops, but there may be individual adjustments uh, uh, on the specifics. And this is a simple slide that shows you how they did it. So, so we came up, so we, we come up with this view. There's, there's a, a hardwired and genetic view where the, where the differentiation, migration, and axon guidance is under very tight control. 
And let me just show you an example of that. I don't know if you'll be able to see this, but it's a fascinating example from work out of Cambridge. You'll see a neuron going specifically to a particular place. You have, you, I, I, my, my objective here, as we get into the larger questions toward the end of the lecture series, is first give you a feeling for what this brain is. And, and you have to have that under your belt as, you, as we talk about the other issues so you can see the basis upon which other claims are made. So let's see what the, if you can see this. Uh, In the embryonic brain of the frog Xenopus, neurons extend axons from the eye to connect to appropriate target cells in the midbrain. Early in embryogenesis, these connections have to be made properly. Growth cones at the tips of the elongating axons guide cells in the right direction. Growth cones elongate towards their targets by extending and retracting thin processes called philopodia. In this way, the growth cones probe their environment for guidance. In this case, they cross paths as cues lead them on unerring courses towards their targets. After entering the appropriate part of the midbrain, the optic tectum, the axons slow down and send out branches, which can sample numerous target neurons and establish synaptic connections. These two axons took six hours to grow to their targets less than a millimeter away. That's unbelievable. And now there's this concept of activity dependence, that once the neurons get to a particular point, the actual activity of the neuron influenced by input from the environment does the final adjustments. So while there's great, the notion that, and these are enormous battles in neuroscience, but I'm summarizing them there in terms of the larger points. Once the neuron is directed to Edinburgh, then depending on which pub sells beer more cheaply, people tend to go to that pub versus the other. I don't know, that doesn't work, but you, you get the idea. There's activity dependent uh, final uh, input to the connections are, as we build this nervous system. And this is, done, this is seen from this work of, of Kurt Haas uh, uh, in, in this slide here. So, so okay, so that's, that is this dynamic brain developing. How, how does it get shaped? How does it actually come to be what, it, what we are, what an animal is? What, what are the forces in the large picture of, of evolution that guide this thing to, to a final state. And uh, since this is a general audience, uh, I wanted to, to just give a little snippet to show you the power of, uh, of uh, natural selection methods, uh, mechanisms, because it is so powerful, it's so simple, and it is so pervasive. And so here's an example of uh, what happens to a praying mantis. Old striking examples. Take a look at this mantis here. This thing is almost perfectly disguised as a leaf. I mean, but you can see, if you look at the underside, that it's a praying mantis, just like you'd find in a garden in North America. But this one is highly modified. Its, it's thorax is flattened out to look like a leaf, and its wings are modified to look like leaves. You can even see the veins. If you imagined a population of mantises, and some looked more like leaves than others, uh, those ones that look like leaves may tend to survive and reproduce more than others. And so uh, a series of modifications could build up over time to result in, a, in an almost perfectly leaf-like mantis. But if you put it on a background, you know, on which it doesn't belong, I mean, it just sticks out like a sore thumb. And it would almost certainly, where are you going? So, so we, we come back to this issue of, that goes throughout all of biology and is constantly coming up and being batted down to demonstrate that the complexity is built into the organism, that it gets there through natural selection. And we see it time and time again. And in 1968, Niels Yerny, uh, the famous immunologist, Swiss immunologist, made a startling proposal to those of us uh, in neuroscience as to how uh, all of this may apply to understanding the brain and how it gets its job done. And in the 68 paper entitled uh, Selection Versus Instruction, simply enough, uh, he said, look, he says the brain is built like the immune system and uh, it, it, where the complexity is built in. And then he went on to explain this, uh, which I, I'm about to. But he said they made the startling suggestion that uh, learning, 
the learning that you and I experience may actually may be the process by where we're sorting through pre-existing capacities that we possess to apply to a particular uh, challenge that we're faced with at, at a moment in time. And so you're already taking, so the idea again, the complexity is built into the brain. We've seen the specificity. Is there actual complexity built into the brain? Is that what comes along with all the specificity that we saw in the first bit? And uh, so Yerni uh, uses, I said, the metaphor of the immune system where he looks at lymphocytes, and as they differentiate, of course, they all take on a different, uh, uh, slightly different character on their surface, and for the natural cells of the body where this is happening, they cancel each other out, and the ones left over that aren't canceled by their own cells are the antibodies that you and I have. That's it. We're born with them, and we have them. And then these are the antibodies that protect us against future challenges and disease. So Yerni proposed that same simple mechanism, maybe, as I said, true for the brain. Let's see how that plays out. The idea, again, being selection from pre-existing capacity. Selection from pre-existing capacity is a major idea uh, that comes out of, uh, out of this work. So, so Yerni goes through and makes, wanted to make the point in, a, in the strongest possible way to the neuroscience community about how pervasive this idea is all in biology. And he takes the uh, idea from population uh, uh, biology where uh, the famous uh, uh, ch chaffinches of the Galapagos, where there were large and small beak chaffinches, there was a drought, all the small beak chaffinches died off, and the large beak chaffinches uh, survived because they could crack open the nuts, the few nuts that were around, and then they proliferated and became the dominant bird. Well, is that, was that instruction? People actually, some people thought it was instruction. Uh, but in fact, it's not. It's selection from a, a pre-existing complexity that in this case is in the population. Uh, Peter Marler in his famous works on how the young bird uh, learns uh, to its uh, song, or the young male bird learns its courting song, learns it from the father. And uh, Peter Marler, uh, this is an example from the white-crowned sparrow where the white-crowned sparrow has to be exposed to the father's song at a particular time and so forth. And, uh, and it learns the song. If it learns, uh, if it is exposed to the father of a white-crowned sparrow in the next hill over, it's a slight dialect from this one, the bird also learns the song, okay? But if the bird is raised in the presence of a, a house sparrow, where the song pattern is just a little more different, a little, little different prosody to it, the young bird never learns the song, just doesn't learn. And yet you and I would be listening to this, these recordings, and, oh, if I can learn that, why can't I learn this? But, but these things are, and at this level of the nervous system development are very tight, and, and this remarkable discovery was made. So pre-existing neural constraints. And then you move this up into humans, and you say, well, you know, what are some of the things that we come in early with? What, what, are, what are some of the factory built-ins that we have. And the work of Rene Balogeron is striking, and we'll be hearing a lot about this later on. But uh, very simply, uh, Rene uh, showed uh, how simple physics seems to be part of us. She takes very young babies, and they're sitting on a table, and there's a ball sitting on the table. And then she raises a shield between the baby and the ball, and then she sneaks in and takes the ball away. Okay? And then, the baby either sees the screen go flat down or at an angle such that it would represent that the ball is still there. If the screen goes flat down, the babies are shocked because they already understand physics and they understand mass cannot pass through mass. And so what happened there? And they're puzzled. So baby's astonished at the impossible. Baby is bored with the possible. Intuitive physics is built in. And these studies go on in six-week-old babies. Again. What we're driving towards here is how many things we come with, how many things are built in. And you now go into the level of human perception, and you can see again how there are many automatic processes that are built in that have been selected out over time. And here is the, the, the necessary uh, uh, features of how we adjust to local cues to, to figure out what, if two things uh, have a, a particular kind of brightness. And because of the way this picture is set up, it looks like, of course, there would be a shadow here. 
and this, this square is brighter than that one, but if you follow, this is the exact same picture. We take away all the cues. This is done automatically for you. You, can't, you don't think about this. This is built-in automatic part of your brain, but we cover up everything, and you see those two cubes are actually the exact same color. So um, a, a bring this all the way up to a current example that comes out of modern brain imaging, and I'm suggesting this as a possibility uh, and not a, a, by, any, by any means a, a fact. There's a, there's a task called the verb generation task. And this is a task you can give somebody when they're in one of these fancy brain imaging devices that you read about so commonly. And uh, a verb generation task would be, I give you the word scissors and you gotta think of a verb that goes with it. So you think of, after a while you get good at this, you think of cut. Well, when you first start this game, you're very slow to respond and you see uh, in your reaction times uh, uh, a, a slow response. And then as you get better and better and better and better and better, better, you go down and you become very fast until we change the game on you and then you gotta start over. Well, if you, so that's just the behavior. If you now look inside the brain, you see that in the unpracticed condition where you're just learning how to do this, you see parts of your left frontal lobe becoming highly activated and also the right cerebellum. There's a whole other story there, but the point is that you see tremendous activation. And then as you become practiced, you see it disappear. It's like when you don't know what you're doing, you have all of these strategies come up to the fore to sort out, and that all takes brain energy, which is detected and picked up by the scanner. And then it's finally the, the right one uh, is developed to apply to this problem, away goes the need for that large energy. So, taking stock, where, where are we at this point? Well, the instructional view, the the early depiction of the brain promoted by Lashley and Watson and Weiss featured the brain as an undifferentiated mass ready to learn. Any brain could learn anything. It was the ultimate instructional system. And the hardwired view of Hebb and Sperry and others challenges the conception, arguing instead that the brain is built in a very specific way. We came largely pre-wired. The current view is a combination in a way. The large-scale brain plan is genetic, but specific connections at the local level are act actively dependent and function on epigenetic factors and experience. Now think about that. Epigenetic factors and experience. That is really setting the stage for the human condition. What is it? Why is that so important when we think about the development of the human and, and, and how we got to be uh, what we are? So, uh, that's a jumping off point for bringing this into the human sphere. And uh, to point out that when we start to think about a humans, lots of things happened at once. One thing didn't happen to control everything. There wasn't simply that there was bipedalism. There wasn't simply that the brains began to get bigger. There was all kinds of things, an interaction of those two things, uh, inventiveness. There was the ability to change your niche, the, the cognitive nature of your niche, and by changing the cognitive nature of the ditch, niche, changing your environment such that then selection pressures varied on the kinds of, 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 of uh, humans that would survive. It's a very complex interaction. So it is not simply going from uh, 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 to, to, to bipedalism, at, which happened around uh, uh, oh, five million years ago, and then just recently, last month, the, the work of Tim White pointed out that they finally have found an intermediate animal that shows the foot around 4.4 million years ago, the intermediate between the, uh, the chimp foot and the human foot, and then, as you know, uh, uh, the f famous footprints found in, in Laetoli, Africa, three and a half million, and of course, Lucy found 3.2 million years ago. All of this came together into, into this incredible story that we now have to think about the brain changing with the environment and how does that work? Well, we're gonna launch ourselves into the cognitive niche and this is very important. So we have the many neural circuits crafted by neural development. We have complexity built into the system and activity dependent processes, like I said, the specific connection. We have strategies and capacities for learning, but not the learning itself. All of that is coming along, 
But now the big one, staying plastic to adapt to the ever-changing cognitive niche. This is what the human brain can do, and in fact, is built to do it. So if you look at, uh, at the young baby, and you look at uh, comparing the newborn baby to the newborn chimp, uh, you see, of course, everybody knows that the young human brain is hardly formed from its out, outer skull to its inner brain parts. Uh, we know that the, excuse me, that the, that the human brain is four times the size of the chimpanzee brain. But what we don't commonly appreciate is the fact that when the chimpanzee is born, they're pretty fully developed. And when the human is born, it's really born with half its brain size, and it takes 12, 14 years before it fully develops. There's all kinds of refinement and influences going on in this plastic period uh, in, in the young child's brain. And, uh, and so with that, what, what does that mean for us? What, what does this big brain uh, say, and how is it different from, how are we truly different from uh, other animals? Well, as you know, Charles Darwin and, and uh, Thomas Huxley thought that the only difference was size. The difference between the brains of humans and our nearest primary was only one of size. As they put it, it is one of degree rather than, than kind. And as you uh, uh, citizens of Edinburgh know, Charles Darwin is honored here for his two years at the medical school. So, um, so people have made a lot of this. And, uh, and you, 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 take, you take this, you take this uh, notion of similarities, and some people just, that's it. You know, we're, it's just gradualism from that, and there's no, there's no big change. And uh, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of support for that idea. We're made up of the many molecular and cellular building blocks, so have evolved by the same principles, antecedents of, of all kinds uh, are common to us and other animals. And, uh, and then you can take uh, little clips like this. Uh, they see, when someone sees the potential tool making, say in a chimp, that's another evidence that there's just a little uh, quantitative difference. There's no qualitative change between us and our relatives. Good tool use there if I ever saw it. And in fact, as this video goes on, uh, uh, there's evidence that the, the mother there was teaching the, the baby how to crack a nut. So then you, then you have uh, tool use in the parrot. <laughs> uh, this becomes a good uh, uh, scratch, massager, and so forth. Anyway, uh, it's, it's impressive. It is impressive what you can get animals to do. But as they say, uh, in California, give me a break. I mean, you know. You want motor skill? There's nothing in the animal kingdom that has that kind of visual motor complexity. There's nothing in the animal kingdom that can do this. The road not taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one. You get the idea. He's a Dartmouth man, too. It's another reason to push it. So, so how, do, how do you explain this? Well, David Premack puts it nicely. Animal abilities are adaptations restricted to a single goal. Animal abilities do not generalize and species possess an extremely limited set. So sure, the crows can, are adapted to solve a particular problem on how to obtain food. The uh, scrub jay is adapted to solve a particular way of caching foods for future food use. The uh, uh, meerkat is adapted to solve a particular way to eat scorpions without getting bitten. Those are all terrific, but none of them can generalize on and take that a particular skill and adapt it across many domains. So the core constituents of human abilities also evolved to specific adaptations. We have thousands of them, as William James pointed out. We have millions of them compared to most animals. Humans possess an unrivaled number of highly refined abilities that evolve in this fashion. But it's the combination of these abilities give rise to additional abilities 
that solve general problems leading to domain general ability. That's a fancy way of saying it. We can do anything. We can do anything. And so this is important because what the modern uh, neuroanatomists and evolutionists say as you climb the primate scale into humans, it's not the choo-choo theory I told you about how as we evolve and the build, an animal has more skills of one kind or another, they just add something. What happens if you follow through this diagram is that the whole brain is getting rearranged throughout. It's not just a simple addition at one point. Everything is getting adjusted. It's like a mobile. You've, you adjust one part, you put a little heavier weight here, everything, everything switches. And this is what's emerging from the neuroscience lab, and it seems utterly uh, to be clear from just looking at the behavioral data. Now, it does have this little problem. Uh, this cartoon says, I think you should be more explicit here in step two, where uh, you're going from one, <laughs> one, you can't see this, it says here, then a miracle occurs. And so how you get to this, to this magnificent ability that humans has, what actually is it? How do you capture it, of course, is one of the deep questions and still unsolved mysteries. But the first thing you want to do is say, well, is the human brain different? And is it only different by degree, or is it qualitatively different? Do we have different stuff? Do we process information differently? Is there any way we can show that circuits of a particular kind are different projections in this? And the answer to all those things is yes. I think there is growing evidence for that, although I would still rank it as a minority view. First, the argument against big brains. Uh, Neanderthals had bigger brains than we did, and there's no evidence that uh, they were smarter uh, than we are. Uh, and over history, um, uh, uh, it's also interesting that any species that becomes domesticated, there's a 10% drop in their brain size. So, uh, and then in my, from my own research, we'll talk about later in the lecture series, in split brain patients, the left brain remains just as intelligent as the whole brain, despite the fact that one has disconnected half the brain from the other. If this brain uh, quantity was such a big thing, you would think that there would be some uh, intrusion on the capacity of the left hemisphere to think as, as, it, as it does, as its function, to problem solve, to hypothesize, and so forth. You would think it'd be, there would be an effect by disconnecting 600 grams of it from the other 600 grams. There's none. So what do you make about that? So, um, and this whole idea that more neurons uh, are the answer to explaining all kinds of things uh, is a dangerous game to play. The chimpanzee has six and a half billion neurons. There's ways of actually counting this. I mean, there's a whole science associated with it I won't go into. But six and a half densely packed neurons. The elephant, a little bigger animal, has 10 billion uh, neurons, more neurons, bigger body surface to represent, but they're very loosely packed. And then you get to the human, uh, where uh, the human cortex, that we're talking about cortex, the human cortex has 20 billion neurons densely packed. But now notice this. In modern studies, very recent studies, in fact, just completed this year, uh, the human brain has 89 billion neurons. All of us have 89 billion neurons on a good day. 69 billion of those neurons, 69 billion, are in your cerebellum, this little thing at the bottom of your brain that helps you with fine motor control. There are only 20 billion in the cortex, okay? This is the thing that we think is responsible for things like human thought, universities, culture. And we think that the frontal lobes and the prefrontal regions are the main purveyors of that capacity that we humans possess. But new studies have shown that in fact, the number of neurons in the frontal lobes, the part that is doing this heavy lifting, as we've thought about it, are vastly fewer than the part that are in the visual areas and the other sensory areas. What is larger, and this is the clue and why I'm setting it up, what is larger is the arborization of the neurons. The possibility for connections is vastly greater. The arbor, arborization of these dendrites is vastly greater in the frontal lobes and prefrontal areas than you go back into these, these tents. So it's giving us a clue as to what to look for if we want to look for differences in the human. 
And so, uh, so are these human, could the, could the neuron itself, the human neuron, behave differently, act differently than it does in, in other species? And I put this question, just for the fun of it, to two leading neuroscientists, and uh, well, actually to a number of them. And, uh, and uh, my favorite comes uh, from this uh, uh, distinguished guy. And he just doesn't buy it. He says a cell is a cell is a cell. It's a universal unit of processing that only scales in size between the bee and the human. If you scale appropriately a mouse, monkey, or human pyramidal cell, you won't be able to see the difference even if you had Pathea to help you. All right? And then you have uh, the other view. All neurons are not alike, and sometimes some neurons may be found only in primates or humans. Moreover, a given type of neuron may exhibit unique properties in a given species. Now, as I said, the former view here is the majority view, but this new view is coming on in the last 10 years, that there are unique capacities in the human neuro uh, neuronal system that are important and must be considered in this debate. Uh, uh, the work of uh, Todd Price is of, of interest uh, here, here is a, a stain uh, that you can look at particular types of cells. Here are a series of primates up to the human, and I won't, let's see, is this the slide where, yeah. If you look at this particular layer four in the visual cortex of the human, an unlikely place to look for it, you see the local organization is completely different than in the chimp, which is different than the pongo, and different than the macaque, and so forth. And uh, so the different way the, Brain has organized itself at the local level in the human. It's completely obtainable, seeable, detectable, quantifiable at this time. Uh, and that's just another slide saying the same thing. The work of Gordon Shepard, where he takes cells out of human brains during the course of ep uh, epileptic surgery. Someone, uh, a patient has to go in for epileptic surgery. That, uh, 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 excuse me, to, to go in for, to remove a tumor, and on the way to the tumor, they have to go through good cortex. He gets a few of those cells, puts them in a tissue culture, and can record for them. And he does the same thing to a guinea pig. And he makes the startling observation that the way the dendrites respond is simply different between the two species. Now, these are all peripheral cues, but they're all coming about uh, at a new time in neuroscience. And they're all, I think, extremely important. Here's a paper that came out in 2003 by John Allman at Caltech where he notes the difference that humans have this special neuron called the von Economo neuron that has a particular organization. And you see it uh, very clearly uh, in the frontal insular and anterior cingulate regions. You see it very clearly in the human. You see it only suggestively so in the chimpanzee. And he then, uh, whoop, excuse me, he then, uh, uh, does counts where the average ape has about 7,000 of these neurons, the average newborn human has about 28,000, and then the adult human, uh, uh, human child has 184,000, the adult 193,000. And this neuron simply isn't found in any numbers in the, in the chimp. What are these neurons doing? Turns out that this particular uh, set of neurons seem to be absent uh, in some forms of autism. Is this the ingredient that's gone wrong? Is this, are these cells organizing information in such a way that allows for different processing and, and so forth? And you, you, you see the idea. And then just quickly, uh, Pashko Rakish has found yet another uh, kind of neuron uh, that's in the uh, plexiform layer of the the primordial plexiform layer of, 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 of the thalamus. All of this new, all of this suggesting that there may be uh, lots of ways of thinking about the differences between the human and the chimp. And so how we're going to think about these is through the, the connections, the, the way neurons interact, the, maybe the actual processing capacity of the neurons, as I said, but also at the level of their connections, as which has been a theme of the talk. And we can see this from the work of other, uh, Rilling and Enzel. As you go from the squirrel monkey to the human, the size of the thing that connects the two parts of the brain together, this thing called the corpus callosum, decreases in size, decreases. So the brain is becoming less hooked up as we evolve towards the human condition, and more information is getting processed locally. 
locally. So as you just saw that in the previous slide of price, where all of a sudden there's local changes in the difference of, of, of uh, in a processing stream in the sensory world. So, so one last example, and then we'll wrap it up for tonight, which is that uh, I want to give you an example of how dramatically different uh, and very simple, and this is one I can attest to because it's, it's my research, <laughs> uh, and that is that if you compare the this little commissure right here, it's called the anterior commissure, and this is the big commissure called the corpus callosum, and this is a monkey braid, okay? So if you split the monkey braid, which means to cut this corpus callosum, there's no effect on the animal's visual world, none whatsoever. In order to have an effect, you have to cut this little thing called the anterior commissure. Okay, that's just the way it is. Those are the facts, thousands of experiments and so forth. Now we go over to the human. If you leave this anterior commissure intact, as you might have done, uh, as I did in the monkey, if you leave the anterior commissure intact, it has no effect. If you have cut the corpus callosum in the human, there is no connection of vision between the two hemispheres, none. And that's with this thing intact, this large commissure intact in the monkey, that has to be cut. So, at the level of the system, of the organization of the visual system, you can see dramatic uh, differences between uh, species. Uh, in new work coming out of something called diffusion tensor imaging, which allows for the first time to not just draw and hope that this is the way the brain is organized, but to actually see it in the human. And we're going to look at something called the arcuate fasciculus, the, the, uh, this projection from the temporal to the frontal lobes. That's the, that's the classic drawing. And using this new technique, you can actually track the nerve fibers that are present in brains uh, of not only humans, but as you will see here in uh, the rhesus monkey and the chimp. And this arcuate fasciculus is completely differently organized in the monkey, where it is coming to the frontal lobes from this ventral root, and it's a very weak projection, whereas in the chimp you see it flips over, starts going the dorsal root, and in human, the connection between the temporal lobe and the language areas of the frontal lobe are profound and large and, and, and follow the route seemingly paved by, by the chimp. So when we say, what are these differences between the human? And what are these differences between uh, the chimp? Uh, I think we're hard-pressed to simply say it's a quantitative difference anymore. It seems to be that there are organizational differences that when we truly come to understand them will help us understand what makes us so, so different. So where does all this lead? Well, we have this wildly developing brain that's under tremendous genetic uh, control that's being refined in the end by epigenetic factors and by uh, uh, the activity that I, that I show, showed you about, the activity-dependent learning. And what we know, and I'm just jumping ahead to give a preview of where we're going with this, what we know as we look at the human brain is that we have all these cognitive abilities that are separated and spatially represented in different parts of the brain, just sort of indicated here. These all have different neural networks, different systems. We seem to have what is commonly called a parallel and distributed system throughout the brain. And uh, the work of, uh, of uh, Mark Rakel and Steve Peterson and Mike Posner pointed this out several years ago, where we take just the simple act of hearing words and you get particular parts of the brain to react. Seeing words, you get still different parts of the brain in the act. Speaking words, different parts of the brain react. Generating verbs, different parts of the brain react. And this can all be going on in the same task. So these things are going on in parallel and distributed throughout the, system, throughout, uh, the brain. And the question then is, um, does it matter? What, is, what does this mean? What does it mean that complexity is built into the brain, our functionality is automatic, our brains are structured, complexity not random, natural selection has left humans both with innumerable skill sets and a general capacity, and as we will get to, our personal narrative is computed by an embodied and embodied in the brain, not outside mental forces compelling the brain. And most importantly, our brains have multiple control systems, not just one. Now, what, is, what, what does that mean? Knowing this, 
How does that make us feel? So uh, to understand what we are and how we got here, to wonder if we're all freely choosing moral agents, to wonder how it all works, to grasp why we feel psychologically unified and free, no matter what is learned. And no, certainly no matter what I just said. Uh, why do we feel this overwhelming sense there's someone in there pulling the levers? There's someone making those decisions. That is the homuncular problem. That is the problem that we can't seem to shake. We believe in it, even though we don't. We live with the data people like me. It's got to work a different way. We strongly we believe in that. We're going to talk about all those things uh, uh, in the days ahead. But uh, I wanted to leave you with the fact that now that we understand we have this complex plane, parallel distributed, and there's lots of control systems in there and all that kind of stuff, we can get rid of this homuncular problem. And I wanted to leave you on the happy thought that neither can Hollywood. Look at this. What the hell is that? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, just to get this going, could I ask a question? You, um, when you were identifying what you took to be the differences, or certainly some of the differences between non-human and human animals, you spoke in terms of the human capacity for generalization, uh, and uh, that was the point at which you illustrated the, uh, the piano playing and saying there was no counterpart of that in, uh, among non-human animals. And um, just, I mean, I suppose this notion of generalization itself perhaps could be disambiguated. I mean, there's two, there are more than one kind of generalization. So one, I suppose, and I took it this was perhaps what you have in mind, which is where you might get a creature that could project an ability into novel kinds of circumstances. So it could engage in a kind of analogical deployment of that capacity. Right. It takes you know, a capacity to pick something up, but uses it in an entirely different kind of context. But that, I mean, that's one kind, and I suppose if we had to say what kind of faculty is in play there, it would be natural to reach out for something like imagination or a capacity to see things, you know, so on. But there's a different kind of generalization that one might think was characteristic of human intelligence, which is uh, generalization, I mean, moving from the perceptual to the conceptual, as it were. I mean, seeing things under new kinds of descriptions, not just perceptual descriptions here or behavioral routine descriptions, but as things of certain sorts and such like. So, and now we might think of this not so much as a capacity for imagination as for intellectual engagement with the world. Um, what I, so I suppose one question then is just this, do you, is, do you accept that second mode of generalization as being distinctive of the human? And the, the more general question is this, which I'm not, and no doubt this is going to be addressed in the subsequent lectures. I mean, you've drawn a parallelism as you see it between the discontinuity at the level of expressed behavior and thought in the part of the human and the discontinuity at the level of the brain in the part of human brains not, and uh, non-human animal brains. So this is a not merely quantitative, but a qualitative difference. But what begins to be the kind of story <laughs> that would bring those two sorts of non-quantitative differences together? That's a great question. Uh, the, I guess what I'm trying to do is to, to, to get away from the idea that what will explain it is simply more computational capacity. That's simply raw uh, amount of computational skill. That what we have to understand are, is the trick that takes us from all these specialized adaptation to this general skill. As they say, then a miracle happens in the cartoon. Uh, that that miracle is there, that we generalize across domains is the fact on the ground. 
the mechanisms by which that is to be uh, understood and recognized, I think, has to come from the fact that we will not find that uh, answer in a comparative anatomical or uh, behavioral study. It is going to be a unique problem of the way the human brain is organized. Therefore, we have to study the human brain to gain that insight into that generalizable capacity. Are there several generalizable capacities? Sure, I think there are. I think they, they go across many, many domains. But that's the trick, is we become domain general and from domain specific. And I don't have the answer to how that works. I'm just saying we now have to look at it knowing that the brain is probably just simply organized differently. Take that into account. These are for the people who are trying to go after that from a, from a neurobiologic perspective. And by the way, Professor Brown made an error, believe it or not, in his introduction. He said, I was a philosopher, and uh, I do not have that honor. So uh, I came out of biology, and it shows. The question may be rather out of date, but our professor of neuroanatomy, who'd spent a lot of time uh, chasing neurons in the spinal cord of a cat, I believe, uh, he wondered if something as complicated as the brain could ever understand itself. Well, um, that's, it's, it's, what's the line? Uh, uh, us understanding the brain is like a dog, or a nematode trying to figure out a dog. Uh, that problem is there. Uh, it, I just don't accept it. I, we're, if you look, my, my example is that if you look in 1954, DNA, genetic material for heredity, was articulated, defined, revealed. In 50 years, 50 years, we now have molecular knowledge of the intricacies of the cell, which are every bit as, in, uh, as complicated as the intricacies of the nervous system. We have insights that are simply breathtaking. No one would have imagined it 50 years ago. So I'm holding out the belief that, uh, that there will be fundamental neuroscience axioms develop in the next years that will bust things open. I actually to, uh, kind of think we're in a little bit of a rut right now. Uh, and in, the, in that um, we need new tools. We know, we're gonna explore this in one of the lectures. We know the limitations, of, the current limitations of neuroscience ability to explain some things we thought we could understand. We could explain. Turns out I don't think we can. But that, for a minute, doesn't mean to me that uh, the solutions won't come along by creative people thinking of new ways of tackling the problem. So I, uh, I wouldn't accept the the uh, concern as much as a lot of people do. So, hi, so I'm, I'm sure you're gonna get to this. It's just to flag something that looks like it might be in the end some kind of tension. So there's sort of two pictures here. One of them is the kind of conservation of a, a sort of global plan in some way. And the other is that, you know, as things change, everything changes. You, so you have these sort of two pictures. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, the, the danger would be that if it's really the case that everything changes as things change, mm -hmm. then the value of, as it were, conserving the global plan becomes yeah. less clear to see. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I just quick comment on that. No, I, that's right. And, and there are certainly going to be conserved areas of the brain. We know there are conserved areas of the brain. But in this cortical mantle, there seems to be this ability now, I mean, there seems to be this incredible variation that was not recognized 15 years ago. And it's going to be recognized uh, with, uh, with great speed now because of these new imaging technologies, the diffusion tensor imaging technology in particular. 
So for uh, up until five years ago, it was basically impossible to do what's called long track anatomy in the brain. Uh, uh, you would have to go to postmortem. You would, you would, you would see a nerve uh, bundle start as one part of the cortex, and then you wanted to know where that went. Well, it, it immediately became lost in what's called the internal capsule, and you, and you didn't know. And so, long track anatomy simply wasn't uh, that well done in the uh, large human brain. Well, you can now take your favorite undergraduate, put him in a brain scanning machine, run this particular kind of program and begin to follow their neurons, begin to see how they may vary from their partner who may score differently on a reading test. There's all kinds of things going on that, uh, that, that are going to inform us. And then as I showed in that one uh, brand new study there of the arcuate fasciculus, you can see the difference comparatively in the animals. So it's, it, it seems to be big differences in the cortex uh, and that mobile metaphor may be a cortical metaphor and, and, not, and, not, uh, and not be a say, although I, I don't know. I think it's an open question, actually. I think you put your finger on a very important, very important part. Um, there seems to be a lot of focus on the uniqueness of the human brain, um, but why couldn't you necessarily study, say, why a sheep brain makes it sheepy or a cow brain makes a cowy? Why are we particularly interested in just humans? Because, I mean, every species is specific and they've got their own kind of brain. Oh, well, uh, I would say that, uh, that the, the bulk of the history of neuroscience has done that. And... Uh, and the attention to, to maybe how the human brain works is a relatively recent phenomenon because of the breakthrough in technologies of being able to study the human brain without interfering in any way morally or ethically with the human brain. So, so if you can study the human brain, trust me, people are, want you to do it. And it, of course it has the side benefit that things are being learned that may well help in, in disease and all that kind of stuff. But if you're just plain old interested in the intellectual question, uh, the human brain can be studied today in ways that it simply could not be studied 10 years ago, sometimes five years ago. So that's the excitement. That's called, to a large extent, this field of, of uh, cognitive neuroscience. Great stuff. Thank you. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.